0: Hello, and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of the series universe. My name is Aramethius, and today I'm discussing that mysterious race of myrrh that left so much behind, wondrous stuff that would surely have given us modern marvels had they not so selfishly disappeared in the first era. Today we're asking, what happened to the Dwemer? Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that this is my own understanding of what happened and not necessarily the whole truth of the matter, particularly when we get into discussing the more speculative side of the Dwemer. You may have some other ideas on that, if so I'd absolutely love to hear them. Please post your thoughts in the comments and the blog post that accompany this cast or join the conversation at the Written Uncertainty Discord server. Finding out what happened to the Dwemer is actually a quest that's set in The Older Scrolls 3 Morrowind. Your character gets tasked with finding out what happened to the Dwemer, or the dwarves, and why they disappeared. The game's main quest also involves meeting Yagran Bagan, the last living Dwemer, and so we have lots of stuff to go on for this particular question, and it's something that's been floating around in the fandom for several years. (laughs) Decades at this point, probably. I don't know the exact time frames, but understanding what happened to them on one level is quite basic. They disappeared in the 700th year of the First Era during the Battle of Red Mountain and in the middle of the Farmer Rebellion known as the War of the Crag. This happened when Kagranak struck the Heart of Lorcan with the tools that he created to manipulate the Heart. But that still leaves a lot of questions, like what they were doing with the heart, what their overall outlook was, and whether they succeeded in what they were trying to do. In thinking about the Dwemer and what they were doing, it's worth remembering that the Dwemer are still Murr, and so still probably have a Murrish perspective about Mundus. Remember that the difference between man and myrrh in the Elder Scrolls is primarily ideological. The physiological differences come after the splits of the Elm Fae. And Michael Kirkbride has once remarked that the wars back then, in the Dawn era, were ideologies given skin when he was asked about it in his Ask Me Anything on Reddit. So, what defines a myrrh in that case? Mur are, for the most part, cultures that see Mundus as a bad place, as a prison. Even the ones that see it as a good place, most obviously the Khymer or Dunmer, don't see it as something nice and cushy and wonderful. Most other myrrh want to go back. The Altmer want to go back and be the Aedra that they were before and reattain their old divinity, and the Dunmer want to push forward and go beyond Mundus in various ways, mentioned in the Love Letter from the Fifth Era, to quote, you in the fourth era have already witnessed many of the attempts at reaching the final subgradient of all AE, that state that exists beyond mortal death. The Numidium, the Endeavor, the Prolix Tower, Chim, the Enantiomorph, the Scarab that transforms into the new man. The Dwemer continue this idea in a different way, notice that the Numidium is part of that list of ways to transcend. They want to go beyond Mundus by denying reality altogether. Several of their texts talk about escape, in most particularly the Hanging Gardens of Western Corridale has this passage. Why they did not use solid sound to teach escape from the earth bones, in that key line there. Uh, we also have this as part of the translation that we've been given for Cal Salmo's stone when they're talking about the Falmer and why The Dwemer would want to take them in and blind them. The quote is, Know only our mercy and the radiance of our affection, which unbinds your bones to the earth before and sets your final path to the music of your new eternity. So the Dwemer do want to escape Mundus. They do carry on the general Moorish viewpoint, but they do so in the sense that they don't want to go back. They think that going backwards and where they are now is all rubbish. The general perspective is that their position is one of denial and similar to nihilism, although I personally disagree with that particular characterisation. The reason that I disagree with that is that while nihilism says that nothing has a point, it doesn't deny that nothing, anything exists in the same way that the Dwemer do. In looking at what the Dwemer's perspective actually was, we also have Biladas Demnavani talking about how the Dwemer deny the world entirely. The quote is... In their denial of both phenomena and noumena, the Dwemer found comfort in the creation of animunculi, which, in their operation, combined two incompatible principles, thus denying both. The Dwemer think about escape from the earth bones, from physics if you like, and thereby from Nern. We've then got the denial of phenomena and noumena. Michael Kirkbride has elaborated on this a bit in an old forum post, to quote, Dwarves knew that phenomena, that which can be perceived by the senses, and noumena, that which is the thing in itself, were both illusions, with the second one just being more clever. So you've got the phenomena, which is the stuff that we take in, that we see and hear and so on, and the noumena, which is the thing in itself, the object that exists beyond our perceptions and whatever filters our current perceptions are putting on the world, but the Dwemer think that both of those don't exist. So what do the Dwemer think is going on, given that they think reality in pretty much every way that we can know it is an illusion? Is that illusion an actual thing, or is the illusion nothing? To use a real-world parallel, that's something close to this. We have the work of Bishop George Barclay who posits that the only things that exist in the world are minds and ideas within minds and there are various other wrinkles of that which involve things like an objective reality because everything is happening within the mind of God and through that God then acts as the guarantor of the real. Mundus doesn't necessarily have that because it's not got an omnipotent creator behind it. So what's left is that you're looking at false things or things that don't really exist, things that have no real basis, and that's the point that the Dwemer are coming from. Another quote from Kirk Bride to illustrate their perspective is this, In Tamriel, and specifically the dwarves, that aspect uh, is what I can only call the heroic abrogation of everything, a complete and utter refusal to accept what everyone else experiences as the real. That's getting pretty close to the position of solipsism, of thinking that you are the only thing that is real in the world, but the Dwemer's position is to deny everything, uh, thinking everything is unreal and false, and that includes themselves. That goes even beyond solipsism, and to an extent denies even their own reality, whatever that is. Is then the categorization of how the Dwemer think about the world a totally arbitrary mix? I don't really think so. It's quite purposive in how it's knitted together. Um, another quote from Michael Kirkbride that you'll hear used a lot about the Dwemer, is that the Dwemer are atheists in a world where gods exist. I think this gives us a bit more insight, because I don't think that means that they necessarily deny that the gods exist, or at least any more than the rest of reality, but just that the division between mortals and gods isn't relevant. If we take a quote from Demnivani again, it was unfashionable among the Dwemer to view their spirits as synthetic constructs, three, four, or forty creational gradients below the divine. And if you look at some of the texts from the Dwemer that we have, thinking particularly about Azura and the Box here, they're trying to even the playing field between mortals and gods to show that the Etada aren't different from mortals, in that they're made of the same sort of stuff which can either lead us back to the Barclay-esque everything is in mind scenario which may also imply the Godhead which we'll talk about in another episode or if it's not Barclay then at least it's Spinoza who considered that existence was all one substance, it's all one kind of stuff making up everything the differences that were observable t- between objects And different types of thing in reality were simply different fashionings, different shapes of that one substance out of which everything was made. To quote Spinoza's ethics for a second. Three. By substance, I mean that which is in itself and is conceived through itself. In other words, that of which a conception can be formed independently of any other conception. Four by attribute i mean that which the intellect perceives as constituting the essence of substance 5 by mode i mean the modifications of substance or that which exists in and is conceived through something other than itself 6 by god i mean a being absolutely infinite That is, a substance consisting in infinite attributes, of which each expresses eternal and infinite essentiality. So this then asks the question, do these modes have their own existence, or do they not? If everything is made out of the same stuff, is that stuff something else, and are those modes something else altogether? Are they really different from each other? Spinoza held that in this world... They aren't, as their existence was dependent on something else, namely God. Because God, in the way that it was phrased there, was expressing something eternal in the way that substance and attributes and modes and so on didn't. For Mundus, however, things are a little bit muddier. With some tweaks, you can kind of see the Dwemer holding a Spinozan kind of perspective a modest perspective, if you want to use that word, that implies that everything is the same stuff and therefore the gods are not worthy of worship because mortals and gods are essentially the same sort of thing. They're just created in different ways. It also implies that if everything, particularly the Dwama themselves, is all the same stuff, then it can be put back together to make it into what it was beforehand, not necessarily into something older or newer necessarily, just something different, some other creation, some other modification of that substance to co-opt Spinoza's words for a second. And I think that's what the Numidium was intended to be. And if we just take things literally for a second, it becomes a little bit more clearer. It's the numidium is something new, it's a new thing, it's a new medium, it's a new mode, and we therefore have what they were trying to achieve through the numidium, in my opinion. So the Dwemer are focused on things that exist independently of reality, that's what they're trying to get to. And there are hints that this is driven by a few principles, and by principles I mean things like mathematical axioms. If we look at Cal Salmo's stone again for a second, we have this quote. And so it was that your people, that is the Falmer, were given passage to our steam gardens and the protection of our power, literally protection of our mathematics. Another interesting addition to this is that Dumac swears by the 15 and 1 golden tones in the text Nerevar at Red Mountain. This references music which is, in its structure and the way it holds together, inherently mathematical, as well as being presumably linked to the idea of tonal architecture, where the underlying tones of the world can be manipulated as needed to fit the Dwemer's purpose, and then, again, moving again beyond the world of stuff to the world of principle. If we go back to Baladas Demnavani again, he says at one point, they retreated behind math, behind colour, behind the active principle itself. So Dwemer are wanting to move beyond stuff and almost beyond principle in what they're doing to Lokhan's heart, potentially to change what those principles are to adjust how they work. That's a rough guide to the philosophy of the Dwemer, and at least a Cagranachian portion of the Dwemer in my view. We have the and clan who disagreed with the lot at Red Mountain and potentially what Kagranak was doing, and left for Hammerfell before the Battle of Red Mountain. So it's very possible that we don't have an absolute Dwemer philosophy here, we just have a Kagranakian outlook on their views. So much of what we do know about the Dwemer is focused on the disappearance and everything that led up to that, which is the focus of Kakranak's work more than anything else. And just to add another angle to all this, uh, we talked about the Dwemer's attitude to the gods and how they don't really like them. I think another way that people have thought about this is that they don't like gods in the sense that Richard Dawkins doesn't like gods. But we don't really have that as a prime motivation for what they do with the heart of Lorcan, from what I can see. From the Skeleton Man's interview with the Denizens of Tamriel, which was released before The Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind, we have this quote. Do not think, as others do, that Kagranak created the Anumidium for petty motivations, such as the refutation of the gods. Cagranach was devoted to his people, and the dwarves, despite what you may have read, were a pious lot. He would not have sacrificed so many of their golden souls to create Anumidium's metal body, if it were all in the name of grand theatre. So, this wasn't just some great thought experiment. This wasn't a middle finger to the gods, and the Dwemer were trying to achieve something else. We know that the Dwemer, or at least Cagranach's Dwemer, were trying to transcend in various other ways as well, in my opinion. If we go back to Kalsalmo's stone, it tells us that they very deliberately made the farmer blind, and that last line which unbinds your bones to the earth before, and sets your final path to the music of your new eternity, is particularly key here. It's interesting that it when it talks about the bones of the earth before, it's not the bones of the earth in general. It's the sense of what has been, and then what will be afterwards, as something different. I think what we have here is another attempt to transcend. It's a different kind of transcendence, it's not the same sort of thing as the we were trying to do with the new medium, but it's transcendence nonetheless. I find it particularly noteworthy that the farmer were blinded as part of this process. There's a fundamental pattern within the Elder Scrolls universe called the Enantiomorph, which I will be discussing in a lot more detail in the next episode, what we just need to know for now is, if you've not heard the term before, it's that the person who observes the enantiomorph who decides what happens during the enantiomorph is quite often maimed or blinded during the enantiomorph process. So were the Dwemer trying to use the Falmer as some sort of engine for transcendence, somehow forcing an enantiomorph or making an enantiomorph of their own? I'm not sure also if we look at the amaranth the process of the creation of a new universe within the elder scrolls that involves sensory deprivation it involves being cut off from absolutely everything the farmer were blinded and they were chucked at the bottom of some very deep holes is Data a form of sensory deprivation or some kind of experiment intended to induce it? I don't really know, but the parallels strike me as being a bit too much to be a coincidence here. What the Dwemer were trying to do with the farmer, particularly given that they're talking about a new eternity, feels very like they were experimenting with some sort of transcendence and potentially trying to induce an Amaranth state within the Falma, the last part is perhaps going out on a bit of a limb, but I think it's at least a possibility. So much for the Dwemer's overall philosophy, but now we want to get to their actual disappearance. And the first question is how did they disappear? This is the easier question to ask for the whole thing, because we have records of what was going on at the time, although they are many and various and contradictory. Uh, We have the Dwemer finding the heart of Lorcan beneath Red Mountain, and Kagranak then building his tools to manipulate the heart, because of course the first thing you do when you find the heart of the demiurge is poke it with a stick. We have the tools being used on the heart, and then causing every Dwemer on Tamriel, even those who left the Hammerfell, to disappear. We don't know exactly who struck the heart at that point. We got a claim from Vivec in his account of the Battle of Red Mountain, where he says, With Dumak fallen and threatened by Dagoth Ur and others... Kagranak turned his tools upon the heart, and Nerevar said he saw Kagranak and all his Dwemer companions at once disappear from the world. In that instant, Dwemer everywhere disappeared without trace. So we have Vivek saying that Nerevar told here something. We've got a third-hand account that says Kagranak struck the heart. Then we have Nerevar at Red Mountain, which is the account from Ashlander Tales, chronicled by Dunmadistant priests, which says that Dagoth went to his dying lord Nerevar and asked him what to do with these tools. And Nerevar summoned Azura again, and she showed them how to use the tools to separate the power of the heart from the Dwemer people. And on the fields, The tribunal and their armies watched as the Dwemer turned into dust all around them as their stolen immortality was taken away. This account has Azura instructing Nerevar, in the middle of a siege no less, on how to use these fantastically complicated metaphysical tools and do something complicated to get rid of the Dwemer. I personally think it's more likely that Kagranak used the tools and used them very quickly in a panic. His people are dying around him, his king has just fallen, and so he's just desperate to complete his work while he still can. Whereas if you think about how it happens if Nerevar used the tools, it's a bit too much for me to swallow that he would have known exactly how to use the tools to get rid of the Dwemer, even if he does have Azura on his shoulder telling him what to do. If we look at Baladas Demnavani again, he talks about how Kagranak's tools and the sacred tones were used on Lockhart's heart. This implies that the tools were used to create and manipulate music, and if you've played The Elder Scrolls III Morrowind, you know that's more or less what the main character does at the end. You strike the heart with sunder, and a particular note is expressed, which is then sliced up by Keening, which then changes reality. That's in essence what tonal architecture is. It's using various methods to manipulate the music that constitutes reality. Demnavani links this quite distinctly to the notion of reversing the process of subgradients, of trying to reconstruct what the Dwemer were before they were mortal and build their way back up to divinity taking all of the Dwemer souls, smashing them all together, and trying to get a god out of the process, or at least maybe partway back up the Subgradients tree. I think it's a little questionable that the Dwemer could ever succeed at what they're doing if that's what they were trying to do. The reason I think it would be difficult for them to make their way back up is because of what Subgradients is in real life. It's the process of extracting something from a previously corporate whole. For example, if you take the sound of a room full of people and then try to split out individual voices, you are subgradiating the sound. You're pulling out constituent pieces from a whole of audio. However, you can't then reconstruct the original sound with the different instructions and pieces that you've subgradiated. You need more information than you have with the pieces. You can't just take the single voices and then reconstruct the jumble of voices in precisely the same way. You do need those other sets of instructions, which is why I think the Dwemer would have severe difficulty in doing that with just the souls of them that they have currently, or even all Dwemer souls ever. Because you need that additional bit to move back up, you need to know how to stick it all together. That's potentially why we see them using other bits with the new medium, like the Heart of Lokhan and bits and pieces of fabricated material. They need more than just the souls to put them back together to make a new god, because they couldn't recreate the original from the parts that they currently had, or they didn't know that, and that's partly why they failed. If they were trying to, as Demnavani says, use systematic regression techniques to perform the reverse, that is to create the sacred from the deaths of the profane, I don't think they could really manage it if that's exactly what they were trying to do. So that's why we have the notion of the Numidium as part of this. It's not that the Dwemer were trying to go back to what they were before and escape Mundus, but they were trying to escape Mundus like all Mer do by doing something different by moving forward like the Kaima or Dunma, but in a different way to how the Kaima or Dunma do so now that we have a pretty good idea of what the Duomo were trying to do they were trying to use Loc- the Lokhan's heart and the tones it creates to enhance their own tonal architecture and thereby recreate themselves as a new god as the new medium The question then becomes, did they succeed and where did they go? There's some speculation that says that they disappeared into Oblivion, or were creating their own pocket realm within Oblivion, something like that. In particular, we have Falion, a mage in Skyrim in the fourth era, claim he's seen a Dwemer, or claims that he's seen Dwemer in general. I think it's quite unlikely that, they are an oblivion for two reasons. We have Yagram Bagan, the last living Dwemer, survive the disappearance through being in an outer realm. We don't know exactly what an outer realm is, no other character in the Elder Scrolls talks about any of the various planes of existence in quite those terms, but we do know that reaching Aetherius costs a vast amount of magicka, And so I find it quite unlikely that the Dwemer would expend so much just to put someone on some vague expedition somewhere, and a single person expedition at that, and then forget all about it. So I think the most likely plane that he would have gone to is Oblivion, and I could imagine that he'd be reasonably likely to be able to find Dwemer in Oblivion after the event. We have some accounts that claim the Dwemer have an ability called the Calling, which is a kind of telepathy which allowed the Dwemer to communicate with each other over vast distances. I would be very surprised if he didn't get back to Mundus, think, oh where is everyone? Use the Calling and try to find out. We also have both Yagrim and Vivek say that they see no indication of the Dwemer anywhere else. Yakram's own words are that Deviathir has never heard a credible rumour of another Dwemer on Tamriel or in any outer realm. While Vivec claims that Z has no idea what happened to the Dwemer, I have no sense of them in the timeless divine world outside mortal time. So we got those two accounts, and then we got Falion, who is frankly quite the showman, claiming that he's seen one. Um, I think, personally, that he's lying through his teeth when he's talking about that. So, I don't think the Dwemer were transported anywhere. The most likely thing that happened is that they just vanished or transmuted is probably a better way of thinking about it. There's also the idea that the Dwemer, in fact, burned to death from their use of the heart. I think this may be at least partly correct. At the very least, we have a picture that we see in a book called The Egg of Time, which was described by Yagrim as a popular argument against the use of Lorkhan's heart in Cagranach's time. We also have a passage from Nerevar at Red Mountain, which notes that on the fields, the tribunal and their armies watched as the Dwemer turned into dust all around them as their stolen immortality was taken away. So, we have pictures of the Dwemer dissolving into nothing, and we also have the ruins of Bam's Shend, which is a relatively undisturbed Dwemer ruin that we visit in the Tribunal expansion tomorrow Morrowind, which does have little piles of dust dotted around the place where the Dwemer probably would have been at the time. Most other Dwemer ruins, which have generally been broken into and had tomb robbers, archaeological expeditions, and all sorts in them, have no traces of those sorts of remains. We do, however, have Baladas Demnavani explicitly noting that the Dwemer left no corpses or traces of conflict behind, which does suggest that they just vanished. However, he's the only one that explicitly says that they just disappeared into thin air, so the evidence does lean towards them just turning into ash, but whether or not that was intentional is another question altogether. It's an indication that Kagranak may have potentially messed up entirely in what he was trying to do. Yakram Bagan does say that the disappearance of his race suggests otherwise when asked about whether Kagranak succeeded or failed. And if we take it that the Dwemer being bound to the Numidium to make it into a new god was the intended result, it feels like we should expect the Numidium to have powered up and crushed everything once it was activated. That clearly didn't happen. The Numidium didn't activate, and everyone who was fighting the Dwemer at the time was victorious in the various corners of Tamriel. My thought is that Kagranak probably screwed up somewhere, and that the Dwemer wound up being bound to the Numidium, like Arniel becomes bound to the Last Dragonborn, in a College of Winterhold quest in The Elder Scrolls V, which wasn't exactly the kind of immortality or transcendence that they were hoping for. And if you think about that particular instance, Arniel's shade being summonable by the Last Dragonborn suggests that if that's what happened, bearing in mind it's quite different circumstances from their original disappearance. There could be someone to come along and activate it afterwards and bring them back, maybe do something else to complete the process. That's potentially a reason why Yagrim Bagan was sent away. It's a little odd that he would be intended to be away during one of the most monumental events in his race's history so maybe he was intended to be away, so that he could come back afterwards, perform some sort of activation on the spirits bound to the Numidium, and then the Dwemer would succeed in whatever form that would take. Instead, he caught corporous disease and lost much of his memory. Sothisil's last words, which is based on some posts that were made on the Bethesda official forum's after the events of The Elder Scrolls III, and potentially by developers, um, gives us some tantalising things. In particular, this quote. Yagrim, on the other hand, seems to have regained much of the past. He still shows signs of Corpus, but his memory seems to slowly be coming back from time to time. He spends quite a bit of time on his own now, and wishes to remain alone. I'm sure that glimpses of his past, coming freshly back to him, give him much to ponder over. I feel for my old friend. I only wish that there was more I could do. A temper seems to rattle him every now and then, and I have instructed my sister-wives to leave him be. In time, he will come to understand what fate holds for him. An interesting thing. Yagram confronted me after my arrival from the council, and wished to know if I still had the tools in my possession. Upon hearing that the Hortator had taken leave and carried the items off with him, Yagrim seemed quite upset. So it's potentially the case that Yagrim was remembering what he'd forgotten before, that he still had some role to play after the event of the Dwemer's disappearance, and then was distressed that he couldn't fulfil it, and was trying to find the tools to carry it out. This makes some sense if you take Arniel's endeavour to be a rough template for what the Dwemer's plan was. However, that's by no means certain, I must emphasise that. But we also have the words of Zahn from the Skeleton Man's interview, which says this, The Brass God is Anumidium, the Prime Gestalt. He is also called the divine skin. He was meant to be used many times by our kind to transcend the grey maybe. This makes me think that something needs to be activated. You potentially need a pilot to steer it in that sort of case. So maybe Yagram does have a bigger role than potentially we understand here. Unless, and here's me putting my tin tinfoil hat on here. Unless the Numidium was used as intended, and was used to transcendence multiple times, just not by the Dwemer. At the end of the Older Scrolls II, Daggerfall, the Numidium is given to all possible factions that could use it. This then results in the creation of Manumarco, the Worm God, and the reunification of the Underking with his heart which potentially creates Talos through the unification of all the various constituent bits of that Overstall, which we will talk about in another episode. Please come back for that. So we have these two gods being created by the use of the Numidium in the warp in the West. And then if you believe the story that we see in Coda is true then the Numidium also potentially helps in an altogether different type of ascension, because defeating the Numidium was integral to the creation of the new Amaranth by Vivec and Jubal. So maybe the Numidium was used several times over to help mortals ascend, just not by the Dwemer. But that's a little uncertain, that's purely me spitballing, so don't take that as red, please. But that's my thoughts on the Dwemer, what their thought process was leading up to their disappearance and where they may well have gone. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite podcatcher and join the discussion at the Written Uncertainty Discord. Join us next time for a discussion on a mythic pattern that the Dwemer were potentially trying to exploit in their treatment of the Falmer. Next time we ask, what is an Enantiomorph? Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in Uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius, with some kind editorial help from Cyfri. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glambotsky and Jeremy Saul. Check out Jan's work at Soundcloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and Jeremy's Northern Diaries is available for purchase and on YouTube. Thanks, guys. See you next time.